Welcome to this special edition of the Weekly Standard Podcast, our immediate reaction to the State of the Union Address 2014. Here with us is Bill Crystal. So, Bill, like you, I'm sure I was hanging on every word as well of the president's speech tonight. Yeah, if you feel like laundry lists, you'll you'd hang on every on every word. I was a little struck. He didn't succeed in putting. Look, it's big government liberalism. It's not my cup of tea. It's not sure. something I believe is good for the country. But you can put that in a in a narrative, as they say these days. You can put it in a context. You can paint a picture that makes it, I think, a little more compelling and persuasive. At least has a chance of doing so. And I was struck that he didn't really do that. There was no stepping back and saying, sort of, well, here's the situation we're in as a country after X number of years of globalization, after the meltdown under Bush. I actually think, you know, Republicans always complain, of course, that, you know, he's not allowed to refer to Bush. It's it's cheap, but actually, it's still his best argument, is look how bad it was when I took over. And he didn't do any of that, though. There was no sort of account of what he's done over five years, what still has to be done. It was just a, presumably a poll-tested laundry list, and therefore each of these things, many of them at least, are somewhat popular individually, but together, it's just, you know, and here's another little government program that I like, and let's uh, have the Democrats cheer for that, and here's another one. And I think ultimately ineffective. I just think if you're a conservative watching it, there's really nothing in it for you. And if you're a moderate, independent, swing voter type, I don't know. I, I didn't strike me that there was much that was compelling for, for them either. Uh, it was interesting to me how difficult it was for the Democrats to find opportunities to cheer you know, with enthusiasm, because once again, the president actually did i thought come out you know he came out with the heat you know he was pumped up he he went with the cold open which is kind of odd instead of kind of introducing everything he just jumped into a you know to a series of uh of points that he thought uh, were good news for the economy some of them questionable but the point is he kind of jumped right out the two big cheers both why completely political one was Obamacare, President Obama sticking it to the Republicans, you know, how great we are that we gave it to him, which he wasn't, once again, like you said, Bill, advancing a cause. He was just, you know, trying to score political points. And the other was the war on women talk, which, in addition to being wildly inaccurate on the numbers, was a pure partisan. And we're going to get you with the women voters, too. It was the only time people were pumped up was when he stepped into the arena of politics. It's as though his own audience, the Democrats in the building, had given up on the notion of leadership and were ready to get to the next election. Yeah, I was so struck by the Obamacare passage. I really did expect a sentence, a half sentence at least, of not apology, as Ted Cruz said he wanted the president mm-hmm. to, to, to offer, but at least sort of acknowledgement that it all hadn't gone so well that maybe he had even misspoken a little bit about how you could keep your insurance if you liked it, and that, you know, after this bumpy start, he was still very confident that it would work. And, and, uh, but it, it wasn't that. It was just a full-throated defense. I guess that's what he believes. But I think if you're any kind of critic of Obamacare, and about 60% of the American public is, you looked at that and you thought, I mean, what country is he living in? Where I, you know, we, where, where we live, where in the real America, people, more people have lost their insurance than have gained insurance. People are getting worse insurance. Uh, the, the, there's prospects of all kinds of worse things happening. Now we're going to have a bailout of insurance companies. And, you know, I mean, I just think he, he, he looked a little out of touch on that. He was so ideological. Um, so that I was, I was... I was sort of surprised by that, actually. I don't think that really served him well, particularly. The war on women stuff, they've tested that, I suppose, a million times, and I think that works pretty well. Um, I mean, the fundamental problem he has, and I, I think this is a genuine problem, is he can't decide. Usually, if you're in your sixth year in a president, you say, Thing, I've been president for five years, things are a lot better than they were when I took over, and they're going, going to get better still, and they're going well. And that was Reagan, Morning in America, and it was really right. Clinton, too, to a considerable degree. I actually think he wouldn't, 
he, he might have done that some. He, he wouldn't have, people like you and me would have scoffed at it maybe, but, you know, he could tell a pretty good story of how bad it was when he took over and the stock market had doubled unemployment now from 10 point whatever to 7 point mm-hmm. something. You know, it, it's not, it wouldn't be crazy to say the trajectory is right and these Republicans are just stood in the way. But he doesn't want to quite say things are are good either. So because he has all these problems he wants the government to address. So by the time you start hearing about all these problems, you think, oh my God, the country's in terrible shape. Women are are being discriminated against. The long-term unemployment people are people are long-term unemployed, and then they can't even keep their unemployment insurance. And you know, all these terrible things are sort of happening out there. So, is his message that the country's in bad shape and needs all these liberal government programs, or is his message that he's been president for five years and he's been pretty successful? You can't really have both. And I think he's just hasn't decided which, you know, which which he wants to embrace. You know, there are certain things of uh, uh, arguments that you know the president knows are, you know, not serious. One is to stand up and say one of our burning issues that threatens the his- the future of the republic is income inequality. And then two paragraphs later, and that's why we need a massive surge of low-skill workers into right. the economy to drive wages down for the bottom and increase wealth, uh, you know, over uh, overall for the top. I mean, he has he has proposals that work at cross purposes with each other. He has to know that, which once again seems to reduce the entire speech to let me throw out some you know individual bumper stickers into this collage. It's like that worst car you've seen in Cambridge Bill that has the 93 bumper stickers on the back. You don't even know which right. one to look at. And and that's what we got, just this pantheon of liberal bumper stickers with no direction or coherent message. Yeah, I very much agree. And I was very struck, just like what you, what you just said, too, the proximity of the 1.6 million people have recently not had unemployment insurance extended. Those right. people, I think, would have had insurance, what, 99 weeks, isn't that right? That was so for almost two, two years under President Obama, um, they, got, they became unemployed or were unemployed and stayed unemployed. And then, you know, within five minutes, he's calling for an immigration bill that radically increases the number of low-skilled immigrants to the country, which will not help those 1.6 million long-term unemployed. So I think that's a a point that critics of the immigration bill need to really hammer home. I thought his his defense of the immigration bill was really lame, actually. It wasn't uh, substantive. It wasn't particularly strong, even. I think his political strategy there is, I don't want to be, you know, I, Obama, don't want to be too far in front of it, let it be bipartisan, but he didn't didn't do much to make a case for it. I think he thinks uh, Republicans are foolish enough. Is what, what he thinks. Some Republican leaders and establishment types and business types are foolish enough that they're going to go ahead and embrace immigration reform. And I don't really even have to push them to do it, which I hope is not an accurate judgment of Republicans. But you know, they are called the stupid party for a reason. And, and the more I think about it, I you know, I wrote the editorial about it this week. We've discussed it already, and I don't want to belabor it. But the idea that Republicans are going to go ahead with immigration reform now is so. Uh, ridiculous, I think, both politically and substantively. That um, I guess I can't quite believe they can, they're going to go ahead, but I, I, but then I keep hearing that all kinds of senior Republicans are pushing it and think this is important to get done and to give Obama that kind of victory. Uh, it's both bad policy and bad politics for the Republican Party and for conservatives, um, and will really split conservatives and Republicans. I think would be nuts, but I'm I'm worried that they're going to try it. Well, let's build on that for a second, because I was a little bit surprised that there wasn't more of the, I've got a pen and I've got a phone, you people. I mean, it was in there, but it wasn't nearly as, as aggressive as I was expecting it to be. And I wonder if part of that is that they're feeling some of the blowback from, hey, there is this little thing called the Constitution. It kind of matters. Even to some Senate Democrats, it matters. But I also... 
if the uh, if you look at the Republicans, you know, trying to decide, do we want to go forward with this guy? Do we want to cut a deal with this guy? If he's going to play the pen and the phone card, which is essentially it doesn't matter what the law says. I'm just going to do what I want to do. Why in the world would you ever negotiate a deal with that guy, knowing that on the parts that you care about in the law, the enforcement, the rule obeying, e-verify, whatever it is, he, he, will, he could decide, ah, executive order, we won't be doing that part anymore. So he's simultaneously weak and untrustworthy, and we're thinking about cutting a deal with him? Uh, look, I totally agree, and I think that's an argument that Actually, Republicans and conservatives who don't want the immigration deal should make over and over now. Look what he's done on Obamacare. Look what he's already done on immigration. Incidentally, in terms of waiving parts of laws he doesn't like, look what he's doing on drug policy. And you really think you're, he's going to abide by whatever deal uh, you make on immigration? I, it's just he's not it's, not, it's not, it's foolish to make that deal. Honestly, I mean, I just, the more I think about the immigration thing, and I say this as someone who's not a hardliner, particularly on immigration, in terms of the actual policy I'd like to see as an outcome, I'm somewhere in between probably, you know, the sort of where Obama and Chuck Schumer are on the one hand and where some of the more militantly anti-immigration Republicans are on the other. But, I mean, as a political matter and as a kind of governing matter and as a, you know, let's help Republicans win the Senate and really uh, move ahead in a much, you know, have a chance to really help shape policy in a better way, in terms of thinking about all that, the idea that you would give him the immigration bill he wants and let him then just, you know, enforce the parts he like, likes and have just a massive split among conservatives and Republicans. A real sense of betrayal from the grassroots. I wrote that little editorial this week. I'm amazed how many emails I've gotten from people just saying, if they do that, if the Republicans do that, there's no need, there's no urgency. Obama didn't do it right. in his first two years when the Democrats had Congress. If they do that, I'm, you know, I'm gone, or we're going to primary our, you know, our Republican sure. congressman or whatever. So I, I really, the more I've thought about the immigration thing, actually, the more I'm convinced that the Republicans absolutely have to hold the line on that. Uh, one last question, the uh, response uh, uh, by the GOP, and of course, some people are making a big issue that there were three, perhaps four, depending on which ones you count, responses to it. But having a, uh, a, a woman, a congresswoman from a blue state come out and give the response, is there any impact from that at all? Is it just marketing? Was, is this, is this a, a moment we'll remember? I don't know those responses so really, you know, are remembered, except when they're sort of mildly embarrassing. Uh, I guess Jindal in 2009 was panned, right. and some of the others have been. I thought she was good. I thought Kathy McMorris Rogers uh, delivered it well. It, was a, it wasn't the, you know, heaviest and the most policy uh, heavy speech that one's ever heard, but that's fine. She wasn't supposed to be. And, and she, you know, stated nicely her objections to certain aspects of the Obama agenda. Um, I thought she was a, you know, uh, it made made the Republican Party seem reasonable, which I think the Republican Party is, and she is genuinely in the leadership of the House. So this is the House Republicans who are allegedly so crazed and horrible, and you know, you looked at her and you didn't think that. So I thought it was reasonably intelligent to have her put it forward. I, I hope the Republicans don't believe, on the other hand, that it's enough just to do that. They do need to articulate and to lay out, the, you know, obviously a conservative reform agenda. They need to highlight the Republican governors who are doing important things. They this recent health care bill. They that was unveiled Monday as a good, good conservative uh, alternative to Obamacare. So uh, there needs to be substance there. But above all, they just need, I really think they need to be tough, the Republicans. They need to resist. And this immigration is going to be the test, I think, um, because they're the business community and the media and everyone are going to sort of really try a combination of blandishments and pressure to get Republicans to cave on that. If they can resist on immigration over the next couple of months and just say, look, with all due respect, 
to President Obama, most of these ideas are bad ideas. We're not going to pass them this year. Uh, let's go to the voters in November and get a verdict on, on whether they want more government or less, this kind of immigration reform or, or not, Obamacare or a conservative alternative. I think Republicans will do fine this year. They have to have the nerve to stand up to what's going to be a huge media slash big business slash establishment kind of, um, uh, you know, pressure right. and talk and jibber-jabber about, oh, we've got to show that Washington works and you can't just be obstructionist and you can't just say no. To some degree, I'm forced doing more than saying no, but the first thing Republicans are going to have to do for the next month or two is have the nerve to say no. Bill Crystal, thanks so much for joining us immediately after the State of the Union. That's good you did, because I predict within 24 hours, no one will be rem- able to remember anything the president said tonight. <laughs> I think among unmemorable State of the Union addresses, this one will stand out for its unmemorableness. So, Bill, you could well be you could well be right, and uh, this podcast may stand out for its unmemorableness. So that would oh be a no, no, not shocking with the... thing. You think uh, you think that two, three years from now, when the State of the Union, twenty years from now, no one remembers the State of the Union, but this podcast is going to be there and somewhere online. Absolutely, it it will be remembered. Well, that, was good, that was a good that was a good conversation they had at eleven thirty at night there, even even after they would sat through you know the five or six hours of the State of the Union. Well, remember the last memorable line for State of the Union address was the era of big government was over, which of course wasn't yeah. true, but it's the, it's the last one we remember. We did not have that moment tonight. Bill Crystal, thanks so much for joining us for this special edition of the Weekly Standard podcast. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.